1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. You know, there are certain dates in everybody's lives they remember for the rest of their lives where they were, what they were doing. Now, I'm old enough to tell you where I was when JFK was assassinated, or where I was when the space shuttle exploded, or the 1994 earthquake in California. Where was I? Well, there's one other date, at least for me. January 15, 2009. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Let me tell you where I was. I was on a U.S. air flight, a short one, or what was supposed to be a short one, from Washington Reagan Airport to New York's LaGuardia when the pilot came on the PA about 15 minutes before we were supposed to land to let us know we will be delayed. The tower informs me there's an incident on the runway. It turned out to be U.S. Air Flight 1549 and the miracle on the Hudson. On this anniversary of that incident, I sat down with Captain Chesley Sullenberger, Sully, to discuss everything from the lessons of that incident to the recent meltdown at Southwest Airlines the recent meltdown at the FAA, and the proposal, as absurd as it sounds, that some are lobbying the FAA for to go to a one-pilot cockpit. Then, a catch-up with Gary Leff, founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, on his take on the Southwest meltdown, and, somewhat funny, the power of air tags to actually track your bags and what it says about the airline's own deficiencies. First up, one of America's heroes...
2: The Way Car Buying Should Be.
0: Captain, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hi, Peter. Glad to to be with you.
0: And of course, there's another important note this weekend, because just two days ago, the Carolina Aviation Museum, which, by the way, which has officially housed that plane since 2011, officially announced its new name, uh, the Sullenberger Aviation Museum, honoring uh, Sully Sullenberger. Um, That must have uh, meant a lot to you, sir.
3: Uh it's again something I never expected, but it's a wonderful honor and the passengers and crew and I are very glad that, as you said, the airplane we were flying that day uh is preserved and on display to the public or will be again soon it's It's an embodiment of our story that day
0: it is, and uh i will I have to do one shout out because i'm a I'm a big fan of 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 good aviation movies. And most aviation movies, I have to tell you, I'm not a fan of because they're not good. You know, you see a 727 take off and a 747 land. Their attention to detail leaves a lot to be desired. I will say with no equivocation that your movie, Sully, starring uh, Tom Hanks, every single detail in that movie I related to, even you got the gate right at LaGuardia. I mean, everything was right. And um, I mean, my hat is off to you on that because that was a story that deserved to be told as exactly as it happened.
3: And I'm very glad that that attention to detail was there. It's evident on the screen, as you said. Um, they worked very hard. They they copied every detail. The the kind of ring item I had on my the watch I was wearing, you know, the ID badge that we had our our airline identification. They took verbatim from the cockpit voice recorder transcript the dialogue during the flight. Uh, the uh, the they used an actual. Uh, Airbus A320 simulator to film the cockpit scene. So, yeah, they worked pretty hard, and it it was on the screen,
0: it shows. It does, indeed. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the museum, because the museum is going to be relatively large. It's uh, 105,000 square feet. What's going to be in this museum other than, of course, your plane?
3: Well, it's not just a collection of airplanes. It's really um, a STEM factory, basically. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, a way to you know, innovate and, and inspire and elevate uh, young people uh, of all walks of life. You know, aviation is a growing industry and aviation needs people, people who are passionate about excellence, uh, who appreciate the, you know, the beauty of mathematics, the precision of engineering, you know, the wonder of science. And so it's, uh, it's an inspiration factory, I think you'd say. And it's going to be opening probably late in 2023. It's expected to draw more than 120,000 visitors annually and uh, connect more than 15,000 students to STEM programming career development labs. So it's, it's helping to create a pipeline for all the talented people with the right aptitude to fill important jobs in, in every part of aviation.
0: I should note that one of the passengers on Flight 1549, Rick Elias, who's the founder and CEO of Red Ventures, actually donated a million dollars to help get the museum kicked off. Uh, that was his bait way of saying giving back because he survived that that landing.
3: Yes, and, and hats off to him. Thanks to Rick, uh, that's a very generous gift. Uh, Honeywell Corporation has donated uh, some, about an equal sum of that amount. And um, really to help elevate this museum to uh, to be much more like, like I said, a collection of airplanes. It's it's a, a learning opportunity. It's really going to be an engaging series of ex- exhibits.
0: We're talking with Captain Sully Sullenberger, uh, the, the pilot on board U.S. Airlines Flight 1549, who was able to put the plane in the water and the Miracle on the Hudson with the loss of no lives on board, a miraculous day for everybody concerned. The one thing that I've always been, been amazed by, Captain, is that from the time your plane came to a stop in the river, the actual recovery or, or, or rescue of the passengers, some most of whom were on the wing, a couple were in the water, I was absolutely blown away that it took only 24 minutes.
3: Yeah, but that seemed like an eternity, and, and on such a bitterly cold January day, I think the air temperature was about 21 degrees Fahrenheit, the water probably 38 degrees. Uh, there was ice in the river a few days later. Um, so, in hypothermia I can kill a minute. So, I was after we pulled off the landing, our first officer, Jeff Skiles, and I, now a captain at American Airlines, um, and our three flight attendants, uh, Donna Dent, Sheila Dale, and Doreen Welsh, evacuated the passengers. I was very concerned that I, I, I couldn't allow anyone to die for any other reason I could possibly help it. So I was afraid someone would fall into the water and not be noticed. So it was important that the rescue happened as fast as it did. I knew from having flown into LaGuardia many times that the only place on the river where rescue could happen fast enough on such a frigid January day was right between the ferry terminals in Manhattan and Weehawken, New Jersey, where New York Waterway goes back and forth. And uh, they saw us approaching at low altitude, knowing that was not normal, and radioed their ferries to head toward us at flank speed. The first vessel arrived 3 minutes, 55 seconds after we had stopped in the water. And by the time I left the aircraft, when the evacuation was complete, having gone through the cabin twice to make sure everyone was off the airplane, the ferries were around us and the rescue was well underway.
0: And of course, Uh, it it uh,
3: couldn't couldn't happen fast enough.
0: Captain, just a couple of days ago, you know, we saw something that hadn't really happened to that extent since 9-11, where the FAA ordered a ground stop of all departing planes throughout the entire United States. Uh, For me, it was deja vu back back to September 11th. But this wasn't caused by an act of terrorism. This was caused by a system failure of what seems to be some pretty antiquated equipment. And you and I have talked before about this about improving the infrastructure in terms of air traffic control, in terms of internal communications uh, between crews and, and companies and other government agencies. What's your take on this?
3: Well, you're exactly right, and it's an underinvestment in our critical systems. And that's true not just in aviation, but in almost every walk of life, every organization, every part of our society. We need to do a much better job proactively looking at risks and mitigating them before they can lead to harm. We need to take what we've done in aviation, a systems approach, and look at all these systems and how they interact with each other and with the human participants. And they must have certain qualities and traits. Reliability, in other words, not much chance of failure. Redundancy, have effective backups that can immediately be used. And resilience, being able to quickly recover from a disruption. And right now, there are too many single points of failure in too many of our systems, and there are too many common points of failure. And it's apparently a common point of failure that caused this FAA disruption just most recently. So it turns out that a single corrupted file And both the primary system and the backup system of the notices to air missions, NOTAM system, is what caused the system to fail. And they had to shut it down because they couldn't afford to have unreliable information about uh, aviation uh, equipment failures or or, um, any kind of runway closures or other situations that pilots needed to know about before flight. And so that's why they imposed the ground stop. It's a federal aviation regulation that no pilot can depart until they've checked the NOTAMs to check that every part of, the, of their flight can be conducted safely and that there are no adverse conditions they have to take into account.
0: I was just way, about to say, you and I are old enough to remember when a NOTAM meant something else. It was notice to airmen.
3: <laughs> yes. And they've, they've changed that, with, of course, with the times. And it used to be on yellow... Um, Teletype paper. You just have, you, you have to go to a, an office and, and sift through reams of paper of the whole nation's modems to, to find the one or two airports you're going to on that trip. Uh, now it's, of course, electronic.
0: You mentioned but, you yeah, mentioned teletype. It, it's
3: obviously an antiquated system. So yeah. it's it, it's imperative that we do a bunch better job of taking the long view. And this is something I've been saying for a long time, that there's such a strong business case. in in business and in government, for making uh, capital investments in quality and safety, that in the long run, they always pay for themselves. It's much better and ultimately cheaper to make the investments up front, to get it right and not get it wrong and not have systems that are, are reliable and pay the price when incidents or accidents or disasters occur. And, of course, when lives are lost, there's no way to repair the damage. And so we needed a much better job of making investments in, in our critically important systems, especially information systems, because as good as rely, and as um, accomplished as our technology has become, in some important ways, technology can be uh, brittle. It can be fragile. And that seems to be the case here, where a seemingly minor flaw you know, cause the whole system to have to be shut down. And, uh, you know, it's. we talk a lot about resilience now in a, in a lot of fields in medicine and aviation, about how important that is to be able to, to handle unexpected situations quickly and effectively. That takes a lot of knowledge and skill and experience. And that's something we're teaching our pilots, and that's something we need to um, make sure that we take into account as we design our systems and maintain them.
0: You know, you're talking about, you know, technology. I go back 30 years with the FAA calling about next gen. They kept on saying, we're going to do next gen. Well, they've been talking about next gen for two generations. And I remember it wasn't that long ago, if I went up to an air traffic control center and went into the tower or went to watch the guys on the screens, they were moving planes around using scraps of paper.
3: Yeah, and some of the equipment that the FAA uses is so old that some of the manufacturing companies that, that made that equipment are no longer in operation or the the tool dies are no longer available to make new replacement parts and so sometimes the FA engineers themselves have to fabricate the replacement parts they need themselves for these old pieces of equipment that are breaking down
0: including tubes uh, in- them, including tubes
3: yeah some of them have vacuum tubes yeah you
0: know. unbelievable uh so i hope that this you know if much of Congress can't agree on anything, but if you really want to get them united, cancel their flights.
3: <laughs> right. And yeah, So we have, a, we have a lot of systems that need serious upgrading, and that's going to require investments. And I, I can tell you one of the many life lessons uh, I have picked up in my almost 56 years of flying now is that um, hoping you can continue to be lucky is never an effective strategy. You know, hoping that nothing breaks or hoping that the system will hold together long enough until you can finally make an upgrade, that's that's not a winning hand.
0: Exactly. And, you know, the the problem is, even if Congress allocates the money, the procurement process of getting the state-of-the-art equipment not only purchased but implemented takes so long that by the time they implement that equipment, you could argue, by definition, it's outdated.
3: Yeah, and it takes a long time to train, um, in particular, traffic controllers. Uh, you know they have a lot of skills, and they have to have a lot of experience about handling the airplanes. And uh, it takes you know many months to to attract, uh, hire, and train them, and then get them fully qualified on their positions.
0: So, Captain, obvious question: Why aren't you running the FAA? <laughs> uh,
3: I have a good job I like right now uh, <laughs> as a speaker, and. Um, getting to talk about, you know, have a greater voice, talking about important things that I've known were important for my whole professional life, uh, like aviation, and, and recently our, our civic duties that we owe to each other in our democracy. Um, and so I'm, I'm perfectly happy where I am, but we certainly do need someone with a really, as they would say in, a, in one of those uh, action movies, a particular set of skills. And um, it needs to be someone who um, it has good leadership skills, good organization skills, good people skills, and that they can run large government bureaucracies and deal with how government works. And I, as a former U.S. ambassador to the International Civil Aviation Organization, representing the U.S., dominated by President Biden, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, which is a huge honor itself, um, I know firsthand uh, how important it is to know who to talk to in the State Department, for example, and how to have other departments that you have to interface with, uh, you know, collaborate with you, and uh, so it, and and how to have other nations agree on what an airspace boundary in the Middle East should be, for example, which is one of the battles we fought it one. So, um, and they also need to have you know specialized aviation skills. So it takes a special kind of person to, to be able to do all those things in one body. A lot of people have some of those skills, but not many people have all of them. And so it's really important that we pick the right woman or man to lead this important uh, agency. And well, unfortunately, for, for many decades, for way too long, not just at FA but other important agencies, we have had you know, acting administrators And we need to have someone who's there for the full five-year term and that people can count on. Um, I think sometimes the bureaucracy knows when there's somebody who's acting that they'll be gone one day and there'll be somebody else and we'll just keep on doing what we're doing. I hear you. uh, And that's
0: not a a good thing. I can call you the legendary captain of Flight 1549 uh, because you've been celebrated everywhere, and rightfully so. But... I've got to ask you this question, Captain, because I saw it, it was sort of like, it was, it was like buried in um, a, a piece of legislation called the FAA Reauthorization Bill, and it was asking the FAA to consider the idea of a single pilot cockpit. I'm assuming that is not a good idea in your mind.
3: No, and let me be frank, it's a, a stupid, dangerous, and unnecessary idea. You know, um, we've learned a lot in aviation. In fact, one of the best things about aviation is it's got built in lessons learned machinery, like the National Transportation Safety Board, where we investigate accidents, find root causes, contributing factors, and make important safety recommendations going forward to prevent it from ever happening again. Un- unfortunately, too often, these important lessons are bought with blood after an accident. And so we dare not forget them, and have to relearn them again at great cost. Um, so, what we have learned is that no matter how good the technology is, it can fail, and or it might do something that's inappropriate. It might do something it's programmed to do, but that's that's dangerous. You know, look at the Max, for example. Yeah. Um, and so we need to have two. Fully qualified and experienced pilots in every airline cockpit. Because, well, first of all, uh, I've flown single pilot in smaller airplanes. And it's relatively easy for a single pilot to be overloaded with workload. It's much harder for pilots, uh, crew of two, to be overloaded. And we also need somebody to be able to check each other. So we need to back each other up. We work as an effective team where we have well-defined roles and responsibilities. And we can share the workload. We have a very uh, definite understanding of which pilot is the pilot flying the airplane and which one's monitoring that pilot and the status of the airplane and the situation you're encountering. And there's there's just no, there's nothing as good or as resilient as a well-trained and experienced crew of two We have proven in the most public way possible on on flight 1549 in in 2009 that even an, an extreme emergency that's never been anticipated, never trained for, not a checklist for, two experienced pilots can solve a life or death situation in less than three and a half minutes, never having seen it before and getting it right the first time and saving every life. That's the standard. That's what they have to be able to do. And it's not just in extreme emergencies, but in everyday routine. The, the other difficult thing about being an airline pilot is, especially now that we've made air travel so routine and commonplace, and, and now so ultra-safe, the safest, the safest mode of transportation in human history, it's, it's too easy to become complacent, and, and you have to avoid that and remain vigilant, never knowing when or even if someday you'll face an ultimate challenge. But it's on the everyday challenges, making sure that the, the best practices are adhered to on every flight, every day, every week, every month, every year for a career lasting decades. That is hard, too. Not cutting corners, not doing what's easier or cheaper or quicker, but doing what's right. That, it's that kind of, of understanding that in aviation, just good enough isn't. And being willing to be a continuous lifelong learner striving for excellence and doing your best on every flight because our passengers deserve it. That's the hard
0: part too. You're right. You know, the overriding question here, and you just mentioned it, we've just celebrated the 30 safest years in commercial aviation in the history of aviation. There's just, you can't even argue it. It's, it's been amazing. So it's not a question of can we improve it? It's a really question of can we maintain it? And if we're outsourcing maintenance, uh, to companies where there's no oversight or inspection, if we're allowing manufacturers to certify their own planes as airworthy, and we're even entertaining the idea of a single pilot cockpit, that makes me a little worried. Yeah.
3: And it's, uh, anybody who thinks that technology is infallible has never used a computer. Uh, and, um, and there are other situations. I mean, uh, even putting someone remotely on the ground to try to be a backup is not good enough because they aren't in the cockpit. What if you lose the link? Mm-hmm. And then they're no good to you at all. Besides, they you know, on our flight, the workload was so high in those 208 seconds that we had from the time we lost thrust until we had landed. Jeff Skiles and I had to handle a problem in a situation where the time pressure was so high and the workload so, so high, that we didn't even have time to talk about what had just happened and and what we should do about it. Jeff and I had to be able to collaborate wordlessly.
0: My thanks to Captain Sullenberg. So, were you one of the ones stranded by Southwest Airlines over the holidays? Did Southwest or another airline lose your bag? Did it ever come back? And did the offending airline compensate you in a meaningful way for your troubles? Gary Leff, founder of viewfromthewing.com, offers his analysis of where we go from here.
2: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Happy to have you back on the show, Gary. Thank you very
2: much. Good to be here.
0: So let's start with the obvious uh, issues of uh, the continuing fallout from the Southwest debacle and meltdown over the Christmas holiday season. Uh, The airline is still trying to dig out from that. If you do the numbers... They disenfranchised about a million passengers over that period of time, many of whom were stranded, many of whom basically slept at airports or never saw their bags again for at least 10 days. Many of them had to figure out where to go to eat or didn't have the money to eat. Many of them had to figure out alternate forms of transportation to finally get to where they really wanted to go or just to go home if they were on a connecting flight that never made it because time had already expired. And uh, that's still going on. Southwest made a public announcement that they posted on their website that they would reimburse passengers for their reasonable expenses. That's in quotes. We haven't gotten to a definition of that yet. Uh, but that would include uh, accommodations, meals, uh, clothing and toiletries for those people who were delayed more than 24 hours. and of course alternate forms of transportation. We've seen so many stories, I'm sure you have too, Gary, of people who, you know went out and bought, Very expensive one-way tickets on other carriers, assuming they could find a seat to get home, but they didn't see their bags. Or they formed sort of like an ad hoc committee of other stranded Southwest passengers and went over and rented an SUV, which was not inexpensive as well. So I guess the question is, where were you during all this, And (laughs) and, and were you disenfranchised?
4: I actually was the person that managed to fly Southwest successfully. There's probably a million people out there that would like to kill me. Uh, you know, I was in the middle of all of it. And the airport, I live in Austin, and Southwest is the largest carrier here. And there, and so the airport was deserted when I was flying because everyone had been pre-canceled. But when I had seen that two-thirds of the flights had been canceled the day before and mine wasn't, I was pretty confident that it was going to go. Now, I was delayed for an hour. Uh, they were waiting for crew to come in from another plane, and, and that's that's fine. And they gave me 25000 Southwest Rapid Rewards points because they're giving everybody points these days to try to uh, have some sort of an approach, rapprochement, right? Um, okay, but but the, but the
0: good news is, the good news is you actually, now here's where everybody gets to hate you, you actually got to go where you wanted to go. You, just, you were an hour late.
4: I got to go where I wanted to go and my bags made it too. Uh, so that was a, a, a double lucky. Uh, no, that's a, no that's, a, I,
0: that's a double hate. <laughs> right?
4: I, 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 and I didn't press my luck because I flew back on American.
0: I gotcha. But let's talk about the mileage because in your case, I thought that was a rather, rather generous gift to you for just being delayed for an hour. Uh, whereas other people are reporting to us that they were stranded for three or four days and they were just getting offers of about 20,000 miles, which doesn't seem appropriate.
4: Well, 25000 is the standard amount that started that they were moving it only to folks that had been uh, canceled on and didn't reschedule. And then they broadened it out and just started sending uh, 25,000 points to uh, pretty much anyone that was inconvenienced. And I wonder how good the database polls even are at the sort of scale when you're talking about this many people, uh, that they're probably just kind of sending that out willy-nilly. And a lot of people like me that didn't deserve it, at least that much, uh, got it too. So you know, this these things aren't ever going to be truly fair. I got right. to go where I wanted to go, and I got points. And a lot of people didn't get to go; had holidays ruined, missed uh, weddings, missed uh, doctor's appointments, you know, any number of things uh, that are significant and aren't really made whole, even if they get their reimbursement for actual expenses that hopefully they save their receipts for uh, and that they may have to kind of run a gauntlet of, of, of bureaucracy to get. But you know, at least Southwest is doing that and it's more than they're legally required to do and they care about their reputation and they've gotten a lot of heat from DOT over it. Uh, and so initially they were saying, look, this is weather and the CEO kept saying weather, even when he'd go talk about it you know, midway through and beyond. And their spokespeople said, look, this is weather, this is weather, in which case they might otherwise say, look, we'll just give you a refund. But they are doing more than that, even aside from the points, uh, because they they do care about their reputation and they do care about the, uh, the, the pressure from DOT. And, 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 and they're going uh, to have to recover and they will.
0: All right. So it's one thing. To deal with not getting where you need to go, and hopefully getting an adequate, relatively speaking, reimbursement from the airline. But then there's the issue of all those lost bags that are, you know, some of which are still in warehouses trying to figure out where they need to go. Because even if they were properly labeled initially, it's not where they need to go now, since people are not going to that destination. It'd be interesting to see how, how how many days it gets to to get them back. Of course, during the the Christmas holidays, isn't it ironic, Gary, that one of the most popular stocking stuff or gifts were those Apple air tags for your bags. <laughs> uh,
4: Absolutely. And <laughs> this was the best advertisement that Apple could owe for.
0: Exactly. And I I'll tell you my story. We were traveling from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to Nice in France through Istanbul. Uh, the airline lost my entire cruise bags and my bags, all of them. And they claimed they didn't know where they were. My radio producer actually had an Apple AirTag on his bag. And as the airline continued to tell us, "Uh, no, your bags are not coming tonight. We have no idea where they are. We actually were able to call him on the phone and say, well, actually, our bags are right now traveling over Bosnia-Herzegovina and heading over Italy. And we'll be landing in Nice in 48 minutes. And they still claimed our bags were nowhere to be found. Our producer Anthony protus Chung, the hero of the day, went out to the Nice airport at about midnight and found the bags. So those air tags actually do a good job. Sometimes, as you as you reported with one United flight and one United passenger, even funnier stuff happens.
4: Well, you know, there, first of all, there's a very old saying that I think is originally attributable to you that there's only two kinds of bags: carry on at lost.
0: That is correct.
4: <laughs> uh, but <laughs> and uh, you know, there was a there was a funny story in social media about a passenger whose uh, flew United and their bags were lost and they had air tags in them and they tracked their bags to an apartment complex dumpster And United told them that the bags were going to get delivered, and they kept tracking the bag. It was in a vehicle that one day went to McDonald's and then back to the apartment (laughs) dumpster and then, uh, you know, went to a shopping center the next day and then back to the apartment dumpster. So
0: Uh, so the bag went to a garbage area, then went to eat, then went shopping. Yeah,
4: and, and, uh, you know, the airline's really don't handle that last mile themselves, right? They're outsourcing the actual delivery of the bags uh, when they're going to have to send it out to the passenger. And these companies that do the deliveries don't always have a great reputation. And it seems like here there was a driver who had a bag in a truck and just didn't bother to deliver it for several days. And so it went with them uh, when they went to eat, when they went shopping, when they went home. (laughs) And then they finally got around to it a few days later and that person got their bags back. Meanwhile, I had a reader who, had an air tag in their bag, also a United uh, lost bag, and they know exactly where the bag is. And they kept telling United where it is, and United closed the lost bag case without finding it. And they just kept saying, "Look, no, you have it, right? I have, I have the air tag." Um, we've seen uh, bags; going, we've been seeing bags stolen. Uh, there was a story a couple months ago where a, photo, a photojournalist, a award-winning photojournalist, lost their bag in Miami. It was taken from baggage claim. They tracked it down to the apartment complex where the person had taken it, um, and they wound up calling the police. And police even showed up on the scene and, and there was quite a to-do, but eventually they got their bag back. Now. Air tags are worth it if things that you carry in that bag mean a lot to you. They're very valuable. On the other hand, most of the time, bags aren't lost. And so how many trips does it have to take to be worth it to spend on the air tag? Uh, it's, you know, it's not not nothing uh, in terms of cost. So you know a lot of people value it. Um, I don't use them myself, but I try to avoid uh, checking bags. And I certainly would never check anything that if it was lost, uh, it would be a significant loss.
0: Well, what I tell people to do, if you have to check a bag, with or without the air tags, I understand what you were saying, Gary. What you need to do is take a piece of white masking tape, put it on the inside of the bag, and with indelible magic marker, write down your name and your cell phone number. Because if the outer bag tag gets ripped off or the conveyor belt eats it, they have no idea who the bag belongs to. And, you know, no barcode alone is going to save you. So that's back to, you know, the old manual override suggestion, but I have to tell you, it works. So do that. Otherwise that bag never comes back. That, that's
4: right. and put something identifying on the outside too, because bags do look alike. The wrong people will take bags without any malice intended. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to remember in New York having to show bags. Tags, baggage claim tags, in order to leave the airport with a bag. I haven't seen that in a very long time at a U.S. airport. And you know, and you know uh, why?
0: Wait. And you know why? Because airline employees were stealing bags, and they were stealing <laughs> items from bags. So the airlines hired security people to, del- to match passengers with bag tags, but that became too expensive. So they were. They said, "You know, what, we can handle the losses. You know, we'll you know we'll live with the theft." And that's why you haven't seen it. Which is why, by the way. Very important, and this has nothing to do with the recent meltdown at Southwest, this is in general. Bag thieves don't steal bags, they steal items from bags. So, you need to take a photograph of what you've put in your bags. My thanks to Gary, to Captain Sully Sullenberger, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast. Wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production
0: of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free.
2: It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly on your life follow money watch wherever you get your podcasts you can listen ad-free on the Amazon music or Wondery app are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor you better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss